1: good morning folks uh we've got a great show lined up for you today in the 12 o'clock hour the back half that is we'll visit with arnie filko former ceo of the jewish federation of greater new orleans it's a two-year anniversary of russia's full-scale invasion of ukraine was observed on saturday uh the arnie has been working hard to help ukrainians including some of the children living in the war ravaged country. He's recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, and he'll give us an update in his perspective on how things are going there and what he's doing to help those most vulnerable. At the beginning of the 12 o'clock hour, we'll visit with Dr. Sterling Roberts. He's the program director, Department of Pediatric Dentistry and assistant professor at LSU Health Sciences Center School of Dentistry. We're going to be talking about nitrous oxide gas. Which has been a great tool for dentists and other medical professionals as a form of anesthesia, but has long been abused and more and more we're hearing stories about kids that are using nitrous oxide and uh, we'll talk about the damage, we'll talk about the harm, we'll talk about the effects coming out in the 12 o'clock hour. We know that on Tuesdays we have our NOLA Coalition segment and today we will be visited by Janet Hayes director of Healing Minds NOLA was founded to educate and collaborate on alternatives to incarceration homelessness hospitalization and death for people living with untreated serious mental illnesses Recently it was reported that the YPO the Young Presidents Organization is going to embark upon a new project putting new lights on the uh, crescent city connection and here to talk to us about it is scott boyle scott is the department of transportation and development district engineer scott welcome to the show
3: good morning Noel. thank you for having me on today
1: so scott i i assume that this is one of the projects under your command and uh, as such uh, tell us where we are and tell us how we expect to pull this off
3: Yes, uh, this is a project that, that we're going to be uh, facilitating in the New Orleans area. The, the need for this project came out after Hurricane Ida. The the existing decorative lighting system was in place for over 30 years and, and it ran very well. It was an older type system. We had high pressure sodium fixtures in there and, and, and the department personnel maintained it. We had a couple of small projects over the years to keep it running. but. You know, you know, 30 years is is pretty much the the, the full life expectancy of a of a lighting system that's exposed to weather and storms and and unfortunately Hurricane Ida finished it off uh, at the, at the conclusion of that storm and so we we started about a year ago and we we put a design together. We worked with our, our a local consultant. Uh, Majeski and Masters, which is also n- nationally known as well, but but they have an office in New Orleans, and we we put this project together. They put a design, and we decided we were going to go ahead and do a full rehabilitation of the system and convert it from the, the the traditional type fixtures to a more modern LED system.
1: No, absolutely, uh, Scott. I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine that system, The previous system's thirty years old. We're getting old. <laughs>
3: yeah oh yeah it it seems like it seems like just a couple of
1: years ago they were talking about this that project
3: yeah it's it's uh, you know unfortunately it's very expensive to to do something like this you know to to do an led rehabilitation we we got the bids back on this project recently and and they came in the 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 cost of this project is going to be 20 million dollars yeah
1: um Obviously, it becomes a, an attraction for sure. Uh, but the L- LED is going to uh, allow you guys to do a whole lot more than what you could do with the the previous style of lighting, right?
3: Yes. Yeah. The, the The old system is strictly just the white soft lighting that was that was draped across the the top and bottom cords. This particular system is going to have the the functionality and flexibility to where we're going to be able to go in there. And, and program different type of themes so you know for Mardi Gras we'll have the capabilities of, of going in with purple uh, gold and green for Fourth of July it could be red white and blue Christmas you know et cetera red and green so so it's going to have a, a lot more of a, a flexibility and it's going it's going to be really nice.
1: LEDs a lot more efficient and a lot more energy efficient and I understand the maintenance of LED is a lot cheaper than the other traditional style of lighting. Is that true? That's
3: correct, Noel. The it, cost is on the front end. We, we've we converted most of our traffic signals at intersections. We used to go with the, the, the bulbs for those type of systems. And, and typically, you know, for a traffic signal, we, we, we might spend $100 a month uh, with the old the old type of, of fixtures that, that power up the red, yellow, and green signals. And when we convert those to LEDs, we achieve savings of, of – Eighty percent. Those those electric bills go from a hundred dollars at an intersection to to twenty dollars a month. So so you can imagine wow. what we're talking about with this system, where we're going to install over fifteen hundred fixtures on this bridge. It, it's going to be tremendous over the long uh, lifespan of the, of this new system.
1: And you guys have been in the process for a while, uh, just uh, swapping over to LED. For just uh, roadway lighting as
3: well, right? That's correct. Yeah, we've, we 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 don't. DOTD does not maintain uh, in a roadway lighting. We work with the municipalities. We have in, agreements in place, and and but the but the municipalities, including Orleans Parish, New Orleans Public Works, and, and Jefferson Parish, have been steadily going to the to these new LED type systems just because of the. The, the cost savings and and they're illuminated better and it, you know like you said the maintenance is is superior in the in the long run.
1: I think I think people are surprised to hear that government has to pay the regulated utility, the electricity to operate traffic signals, highway lighting, and the like.
3: Yeah, we do. We we definitely get those those bills every every month i can assure you of that and we have in in, in my particular district in the greater new orleans area including Terrebonne and Lafouche, we we have over 500 signalized traffic uh intersections. so so we definitely do that and we're always looking for ways that we can we can uh reduce those costs uh that, that are, you know for the taxpayers and and you know we're, we're very responsible stewards of, of those funds when it comes to things like that
1: Scott, let's get back to the bridge for a moment. A lot of folks are a little angst and anxiety as to whether or not there'll be shutdowns. I understand that y'all uh, intend to manage that with the the least amount of disruption as possible.
3: Yes, we we spent a lot of time phasing this project uh, during the during the design. It, it, it's 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 a very challenging situation where we are here. The, this bridge is carrying over 160,000 vehicles a day in both directions. That, that's over the course of a 24-hour period. So th- th- this is th- this is a real challenge to get this work done. You know, we're going to have uh, the contractor working overhead over, you know, in live traffic. So there, there will certainly be situations where there's going to be some disruptions of, of traffic. And, and we specifically... We'll have to close a lane in each direction, a permanent lane closure, uh, between the beginning of May through the end of August in in each direction of the bridge, in order to get this this work done. You know, Neal, what, the the most important aspect and what our ultimate goal is with this project is that we get it done during the Super Bowl, and that's a very ambitious, aggressive timeline. And in order to do that, we're gonna we're gonna have to close some lanes and and. You know they're going to be working on weekends. The, the contractor's committed that he's going to be working 10 hours a day. So we're, we're certainly anticipating, uh, you know, a, a very uh, expedited uh, work product in order to get this done in time for, for the Super Bowl on February 9th of next year. Yeah, and you're and you're hoping that the weather
1: stays decent because um, the, the last thing you want is bad weather sitting out there on that bridge. Is there an opportunity to do some of this work at night?
3: There is. It's it's much more challenging to to do with that. You know, just from the safety aspect of the workers and being able to see, they're going to be fastening all type of electrical infrastructure, and and I, I do know that the the contractor will take any opportunity to do that, but the majority of this work, from a safety and and efficiency point of view, it's it's going to be conducted. During daylight hours, and, and I and I do want to get back to that caveat I gave you about the, the, the ultimate goal is for us to to get this done before the Super Bowl. And, and you brought it up; it, it, it's certainly going to be weather dependent. You know, if it rains a majority of time between now and then, you know, those timelines unfortunately will have to be pushed back. But we're you know we we do account for some uh, inclement weather in our schedule, but but at this time, you know, it's it's certainly weather dependent.
1: You know, Scott, I I talked about this the other day on the show. There's a whole lot of things that we hope to get accomplished before the Super Bowl, and I said we better start now uh, because we have typically spring showers. If we're faced with a storm over the summer, uh, let's hope that we're not. But, uh, you know, if the weather's not cooperating, this is a tight time crunch on a whole bunch of different fronts.
3: It, it really is newah you, you know this time is going to fly by by the time it's there, and, and you know we've we've been very mindful of that and, and and know that the time to to be working on these things is now it's not going to be it's not going to be in January of next year it, the, the time to be planning and, and really putting things together and and, and I do want to tell you we, we're working not only for this particular project, which we consider a showcase project not not only for the city but for the region. Of of what this is going to mean, we're so proud of of what this is going to look like in, in, when it's completed. But but we're also working on the decorative lights. You know, one of the top priorities for Governor Landry is it, to get all of the interstate roadway lighting fixed in the Greater New Orleans area in time for the Super Bowl. So we've been working with Jefferson Parish, we're working with with the city of New Orleans Public Works, and, and, and everybody's really on board. to to, to put our best foot forward, uh, you know, when we're going to be in the the center of the world for that that big game next year.
1: Scott, in that that respect, I was talking to the new DPW director for the city of New Orleans the other day. He said that they're coordinating a project with you guys that a large portion of the interstate highway lighting is out because of a particular project that y'all are working on. Um, Are you aware of what I'm talking about, and can you give us an update?
3: Yes, yes. That project is a signing project on Interstate 10. It's between the City Park Avenue, Metairie Road Interchange, and the Broad Street Overpass, which is right near where I-10 merges with U.S. 90 business. So this signing project has been ongoing for quite some time. These are the over the large overhead green signs that you see when you're driving on the interstate that may say, you know, Baton Rouge, you know, 30 miles or, or this exit, St. Charles Avenue. These are the big overhead signing trusts. And, and we were pouring foundations for these big signs in the median, and we had to de-energize a number of electrical systems along that corridor. And, and as a result of that, a large swath of lights had gone out to uh, – <clears throat> excuse me – Hey, going out there, so we're wrapping that up right now, and 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 we anticipate that that's going to be done very soon. And and, and once we're finished with what we need to do with the the contract, I had to de-energize that system for safety reasons. Right. They're going to be working, you know, with within a lot of electrical utilities under there. Once the cut, our contract is finished, that system will be re-energized, and the city can continue to go back. To to uh, repairing those lights, and and m- most of those lights in that along that corridor are, are working already. So, so it, you know, a lot of people, you know, we've been working with Councilman Jeruso and and, and Councilwoman Harris on that particular uh, request. She's been getting; they've been getting a lot of feedback from their constituents. So, so I know everybody's going to be really excited once once those lights are reenergized in that corridor.
1: Yeah, I get a number of texts about it periodically when it comes up. One of the other questions uh, that we receive is whether or not this will be the newer technology lights that'll be through that corridor. Do you
3: know? It, it sure will. <clears throat> Newell. The, the, this particular system. The you know I want to share a little, a little history with this here. The the, the contract I want to I want to acknowledge the contract that it was selected. Who, who was who was our bidder for this particular project? It's First Hertz Electric, and they actually have a history with the decorative lighting on the Crescent City Connection. They were a subcontractor from the early nineties when the decorative lighting was installed that long ago. So it's a it's a family owned business and, and they just couldn't be more excited and proud that the generations later they're gonna be doing this this project. And they also the contractor that did the superdome lighting that you see where you have different themes for that particular uh facility so they got a lot uh, go ahead scott they they just they got a lot of history and experience they're a well-established contractor and and we couldn't be more thrilled to have them on board working on this project
1: it's always good when locals succeed uh, and we should be their best cheerleaders all the time but, Scott, I was referring to the lights on the interstate highway. I know that some are kind of the new generation lighting and some were, were still some of the old lighting. Do we know whether or not everything is going to be brought up to the new generation lights uh, when we reenergize that swath of um, interstate that you just described?
3: No. The, w- whatever system is in place at that time, it'll just be it'll just be. Re-energize what it's existing. Some of those lights are, in fact, the new technology, new. They are the LED style, but there are quite a bit of them throughout the city, of New Orleans, that are that are the old high-pressure sodium type fixtures. But I will tell you this: we're working very closely with the city and the governor's office on a raised grant application to where we're looking to upgrade. All of the roadway lightings in the Greater New Orleans area, specifically in in New Orleans, uh, to to the new style LED. The, the ultimate goal here is 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 that the the old style lights are being phased out. It's so hard getting uh, components for them. You know, th- some of these lighting components in in these systems are over thirty years old, and, and it's just not easy to even get the ballast kits to, to for these for these old lights. So so th- there's definitely a mindful push. To go to the new system, and, and we may not be able to get every light upgraded before the Super Bowl, but we're working as hard as we can to get as many as possible.
1: Well, uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's great news um, that this is is moving forward. And um, you said, uh, say again, when this work is expected to start?
3: It it uh, we issued a notice to proceed to the contractor a couple weeks ago. He's in what's called an assembly period where he's gathering materials and resources to do this work. We anticipate that we're going to actually start seeing some work within the next month or so. It's going to to start off small, but we anticipate by mid-March he's going to start taking down the old lighting system on the Crescent City Connection Bridge, followed by, of course, the the installation of the of the new system shortly after that so so people are going to start seeing demolition from from up top it's it's not going to be like there's a lot of crews you know a lot of this work's going to have to take place with climbing and and ropes and and scaffolding and different types of things like that but the, the significant portion of it will take place when that lane closure uh gets into effect sometime in in may
1: so, Scott, are you required to climb up there and inspect?
3: <laughs> no, no, not not this time. I, I may I may venture out there if if, the, if it's not too windy outside, Noel. But, but but certainly, my, my bridge inspectors can 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 sympathize for for the hard work they have to do to to, to, to do those climbs to inspect that, that bridge on a on a semi-annual basis.
1: Scott, I want to go on record right now. You can leave me off the list, off the invite list to climb to the top of the bridge to look at the line.
3: I, I could try to get your spot if you, if you set on right. it, okay?
1: <laughs> no, thank you. But thank you so much for joining us, giving us that update. Uh, great news coming our way. Really appreciate it. Scott Boyle, DOTD, district engineer here. Uh, have a great week, Scott.
3: Thank you, No, You have a great rest of your week
1: that's scott ball dotd district engineer we'll be right back folks 504-260-1870 on the oakland heart jewelers talk and text line we'll be right back stay with us
0: call from mom answer it call silenced
1: instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game that's why they make ordering from your couch easy Welcome back, folks. Well, the story continues relative to the uh, killing of Lake and Riley. uh, That is the uh, medical student there at the uh, university uh, uh, in Athens, uh, Georgia. And um, it's interesting what the dialogue is now. Uh, People on the left, the progressives and others, mainstream media pushing back on those like myself, that uh, say that we should be outraged about this. And there was a great article in the National Review by Charles Cook, and it's entitled, Outrage Over the Killing of Lake and Riley is Completely Justified. And he simply says and boils it down to this, when an illegal immigrant is charged in murdering an innocent American student, Americans have every right to be furious about it. And it's incredible that those on the left are now saying that the offender rate of illegal immigrants is less than American citizens. Why, why is that the comparison? Why is it that we just don't live up and fulfill the obligation that we have to vet people that come into this country and to enforce the existing immigration laws that would compel that they would be deported? Why do we just simply bypass all of this? And as Cook points out in his article, he says this is entirely baffling to him. If the question at hand here were, do illegal immigrants commit crimes at a higher rate than U.S. citizens, these numbers would be relevant. But that's really not the question, he says, is it? The question that the critics are asking is, what could have been done to prevent this murder? And clearly... The answer to that inquiry is going to be completely different when one is dealing with illegal immigrants or any non-American visitor, for that matter, than when one is dealing with American citizens. Because by law, he points out, the United States government is obliged to monitor who is entering the country and to turn away at the border anyone who is deemed likely to present a threat. Go figure. Almost every other country in the world does exactly that. For reasons that ought to be self-evident, he says, it does not perform that service internally, practically, philosophically, and politically. To compare the two is like comparing chalk and cheese. You know, it's interesting, he points out his parents, he's actually British. He's now a U.S. citizen. And he points out that his parents are going to be visiting him in two weeks. And he describes what happens when you come to this country legally, especially through a port of entry like an airport. And he goes on to describe that. He says, in a couple of weeks, my British parents will visit me here in America. And before they do so, they will be obliged to apply for a waiver document called an ESTA which requires them to declare whether or not they've ever committed any crimes, a declaration that is then checked using the automated, automated targeting system, and then they check with another system called the Treasury Enforcement Communication System, TEX, to submit their details via the airline to the Advanced Passenger Information System. We're on system number five now which cross-checks them against all available law enforcement databases and to submit to a short interview with the Border Patrol agent once they arrive. And if my parents were to show up at the airport without these documents, guess what would happen, folks? It would not matter that as septuagenarian tourists from rural England, they are on an aggregate statistically less likely to commit a crime, than our U.S. citizens, <laughs> obviously. They would be turned away at the first hurdle. For them, the system is the system, is the system. Most Americans, even most libertarian-leaning Americans, believe that running basic security checks of this type might yeah, just simply might be a good idea, as he points out. And he says, this. so let's go back to why people are angry with President Biden and the Democratic Party and the appeal to statistics that does nothing but repel that anger. There's nothing to repel that anger, excuse me. Simply put, Americans are just saying the guy that killed Lake and Riley shouldn't have been here in the first place. Plain and simple. Not to mention that they had multiple opportunities to deport this individual, right? I mean, you may not realize this, but Jose Antonio Ibarra was arrested in New York City on suspicion of endangering the life of a child. But because New York City is a sanctuary city, combined with this DA there who is, has no interest in prosecuting crimes because they don't want to discourage illegal immigration, he wasn't charged. He wasn't tried. He wasn't convicted. And he wasn't handed over to the authorities for deportations. Rather, he was just released back into the general population of the United States. And at that point in time, they actually had knowledge that he had actually struck a federal officer when he came across the border in 2022 illegally. So we had him, we had him in our custody, and we decided to do nothing with him. Him because he's an illegal immigrant, because we're trying or not attempting to dole out justice in a sanctuary city. We would rather pay taxpayer dollars to put him up in hotels, pay him to eat, pay him to sham the system. Now, if you were arrested as a U.S. citizen for the charge of endangering the life of a child what do you think would happen what do you think would happen in jefferson i suspect you would go to jail what's interesting here is that we we put no value in citizens rights because these aliens have no right to enter the United States not even if they come here legally they don't have a right to this and if they don't follow the rules and the customs and laws of our country almost every other country in the world will deport you not here we've decided to allow state and local governments to declare themselves a safe harbor from federal laws And it's absolutely amazing to me. I remember when I took the oath of office to be the sheriff, and I reminded immigration activists of this when they came to see me, when we deported more illegals from Jefferson Parish per capita than any other county in the United States. Working with the immigration authorities and doing so and recognizing that when I took the oath, it was to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States, the Constitution and laws of this state, and the laws of Jefferson Parish. And no single one of those in that oath has preferential treatment over the other one. Can you believe how ridiculous it sounds? When we allow state and local officials to declare that they are not going to facilitate help or work with federal authorities. And they say, as Cook points out, that by raising these arguments that we're the bigoted monomaniacal or inappropriate about wanting this distinction to be observed. But yet there's so many layers compelling public officials to do just the opposite. We're taking the oath that we're going to uphold these laws. Nowhere in it does it say that there's a multiple choice that we get to pick and choose. So the question is, is that the structure of our government here in this country, we we either support it or we don't and we should remind ourselves of asking these questions of folks that put themselves up to be elected in public office. We've elected some here in the metropolitan area that have done the exact same thing. They have worked to the detriment of the federal government, of federal laws, but yet anybody else that comes to this country Is run through the ringer when they come here legally. In fact, Cook talks about his situation. He said, I I was not a citizen when he came to this country. He goes, "Uh, now that I'm an American, I'm entitled to all the protections that are accorded to the native born. But I wasn't always, he says, I shouldn't have been always between being granted my first temporary visa in 2011 and raising my right hand at my citizenship ceremony in 2018 he says he was one of the most investigated people in the united states during those seven years i was repeatedly fingerprinted and photographed. i had to tell the federal government each time i moved i went through four rounds of background checks i was subjected to an in-depth interview at the u.s embassy in london i had to provide a list of every country i would traveled to every place i lived every job I would had and every organization I joined in the last five years. And I had to vow that I was not a terrorist or human trafficker or a criminal and that I was not going to restrict anyone's religious liberty before I could obtain citizenship. And I also, by the way, had to pass a civics test. Eventually this led to being moved from one category to the other. But at no point during the long transition did I consider the process unfair. Like the vast majority of Americans, and there's a supermajority of Americans that fall on this side of the argument relative to illegal immigration, I believe that American citizens have every right to determine who joins them in this country. And one of the people who has joined them is charged with murdering an innocent college student. They have every right to be furious about it. And I couldn't agree more. We'll be right back.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month, with eligible trade-in when you switch.
2: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
1: You've heard me talk about how Democratic mayors in uh, purple states, blue states, red states uh, have been crying out about this particular immigration issue and the cost to local government. Well, Denver announced the other day, and we've talked about the city of Denver, um, another sanctuary city, another uh, city with open arms, and then another city uh, expressing angst and anxiety about what's going on at the southern border and the trickle-down effect it is to the city's finances. Well, they announced the other day that they're going to be cutting some public employees' hours to zero. They're not laying them off. They're just not going to have any hours to work in order to tackle the migrant crisis uh, that they're experiencing in Denver and the costs of housing uh, individuals, especially during the winter months. The numbers have been absolutely insane. And as a result, they're going to have reduction in hours of operations and programs that will affect Many that are on call, some to the point where they may not receive any hours, according to the Denver Parks and Recreation Director, Jolon Clark. Listen to that for a moment. The Parks and Recreation Director, right? Those are the things that kind of set communities apart, right, in the services that are being provided. And those are the very things that are going to be cut because of our failure to deal with a problem down at the southern border. Because of your taxpayers having to be spent dealing with this issue because we have a political class of individuals here that want to look the other way. And now your quality of life, those living in Denver, the taxpayers in Denver, are not going to be able to enjoy the development of parks and recreation in that area. But it doesn't end there. So, uh, you know, these departments, they plan on cutting about $4.3 million from its budget to handle the significant financial strain caused by the migrant crisis. 36,000 migrants are estimated to have arrived in Denver since 2022, and roughly half of these new arrivals have put down roots in the city. And, no big surprise, they're looking for services, right? Right they don't have the means to support themselves they come here with nothing there's no sponsor all of the things that you have to do when you come uh, legally none of this was done to to avert this particular problem right here this is the classic example of why you have a robust proactive immigration policy because these are the trickle-down effects that move across the country when you don't do it now of course democrats now are speaking off the same sheet of music um, the same sound bites blaming republicans for not supporting the bipartisan immigration deal well in denver we understand why they're upset because they would have received 1.4 billion dollars in that bill for sheltering migrants they're they there would have been $1.4 billion for sheltering migrants, and they would have had enough money to fill the city's $180 million budget hole because of that bill. So, a lot of people don't really believe when I say there are more things in that bill that are catastrophic to what we're trying to accomplish in dealing with that crisis than there are positives. We want to provide all of this sustenance there again right not that they're just going to change their attitude about being a sanctuary city no they want to continue to do so as long as they can get their hands in the pockets of U.S. taxpayers to cover the costs and deal with the Denver issue and it doesn't go away but one of the most important provisions of this bill is that all that that Joe Biden is looking for has a trigger and it's not until greater than 1.7 million illegals cross the border does it trigger and give him the authority to which he has complained about not having the authority. Why would you not give him the authority the moment that the first one crosses? Why? Because that's politically unpopular for them. They don't want that authority. They speak with forked tongue, and that's why they have triggers. And that's why the the other day I talked about this executive um, uh, action that he may take and issue. It's going to have a trigger as well. Why? Because they don't want him to be compelled to do anything when the first one tomorrow, Wednesday, February 28th, crosses the border that triggers, and he has the authority to do something about it. He doesn't want that. He wants a passage of time. He wants numbers to be able to cross the border before he is compelled to actually do anything. This is a bad, horrible bill. They should have been embarrassed, both Republicans and Democrats who put this bill up, for the sake of saying something is better than nothing. No, let's just enforce the laws that we have now and we will be in a much better position than we would ever be under this new bill. Save other than I should say sending all kinds of money to all corners of the United States to help these cities overcome what they invited to their city as a sanctuary city? Does that make sense? Not to me. We'll be right back. On a text line, thank goodness the GOP has been working tirelessly to make a bipartisan bill on the border. The border is a political check for them. Besides people like yourself don't really want a deal. You just want to bitch till you get your way. Only your point counts and nothing done at all. Actually quite to the contrary, I say they don't need to do anything. Just enforce the laws that we have on the books right now. Those were laws that were passed bipartisan in nature. Just enforce those, and we'll be golden. But that's not what they want to do, because what's on the table is amnesty. That's the ultimate goal. They want something different. They want an expedited path to citizenship. Meanwhile, those that are sitting and doing this legally, sitting outside the country, waiting years on end. And over the years, I've had several guests talk about, I remember the individual from Turkey, waiting dozen-plus years to come to this country. Because under the old preference system, they didn't have a preference. And it's nothing but this thing being... Replete with exceptions because they don't want to enforce what's on the books today. They don't like it. They want something different. We don't have to do anything. Just do what's there. Do your job. You took the same oath I took when I went into public office, when I went in to work for the sheriff's office. The oath is the same. Constitution and laws of the United States constitution and laws of this state and the laws of the parish of jefferson six two and even over and out done when we come back we'll visit with janet hayes in our nola coalition segment she is the director of healing minds nola we'll be right back folks stay with us